If you have a Bible, will you please join me in Ephesians chapter 4? And if you do not have a Bible, if you will just put your hand up, our ushers in the back will bring a Bible to you. And uh, in those pew Bibles, the page is 569. If you're here and you are new to Jesus or still just uncertain about him and you're kind of your relationship to this person, I, I just want to say welcome. Uh, I'm particularly just happy that you're here and glad that you're with us. I hope that this morning and during this next little bit of time that this is a time where you can get to know who Jesus is and, and what he has done. In fact, actually what he's done for you. But even more than that, to discover a little bit more about what it means to follow him after he has, as we'll talk about, after he has rescued you. Well, two weeks ago, my family, my wife and my four kids and I, we loaded up into our minivan. That's a very appropriate word because it takes a serious amount of loading and then it is fully loaded uh, once we're all in there. We got the, the four car seats and the, the kids and all each brings a blankie and a pillow and a stuffed animal. And then we got the, the bags and the food, a huge ice chest and the backpacks full of clothes and the fishing poles. And then on top of the car, we have this car top carrier, a Thule car top carrier, and it is just jam packed full of camping gear. And we set off on the road. And our Ultimate destination or destinations was uh, Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park. And before you ask me about the fires, that's Yosemite. I'm talking about Yellowstone. It's uh, in Wyoming. But beautiful places, majestic places in both areas. You could just see God's fingerprints all over uh, these places. In fact, it's the kind of place where if you were just needing sort of a pick-me-up in order to see the awe of God's creation, you just kind of wish you could snap your finger and be there. But you can't. Instead, you have to drive a thousand miles uh, in order to get there, which if you're going uh, faster than the speed limit, and shame on you, uh, me. That uh, takes about 14 hours of drive time at least. More likely, we're talking about 16 hours of active driving in the car. But for us, I mentioned before, right, we have four kids. We decided to spread it out across the course of three days um, just so that it would be more fun and less stressful and everyone ended up showing up in one piece. And so we thought that was a good idea. And so on that third day, as we're entering Jackson, Wyoming, we're about 50 miles from our campsite, uh, an epiphany of sorts sort of happened in my mind. It, it's rare, but it happens. And, and I had this idea that, you know what? Traveling transforms. Traveling transforms. And this is what I mean. After going 950 miles across five different states and two different hotels and six different meals and countless snacks and all the bathroom stops, our car did not look the same as when we left. It did not look the same whatsoever. I mean, even if, and if you've been on a road trip, you, you know this, whatever sort of idea of clever organization and packing skills you have, somehow, even though you put the clothes that you need for the hotel, the jammies, and for the next morning in the bag on top, somehow the bag with the toothbrushes is on the very bottom. Hypothetically, I mean, this is you I'm talking about, not me. Uh, <laughs> And the interior of the car is just littered with food wrappers and crumbs, some that you're pretty sure are now permanent parts of the vehicle. It changes it, and that's just the car. You, people, we end up getting smellier and just more disheveled 
as we go along. I think it's a weird combination of recirculating air and fast food and just time. It's this odorous algebraic equation. I'm pretty sure the second law of thermodynamics was actually discovered after a road trip because they recognized there is just increasing disorder and loss of energy in all the time. But even in the most basic sense, we can sense that we can see that traveling transforms. But that's just the physical side. Besides sort of that comical, obvious mess that it creates, it also, what does it do? It provides time and, and space for conversation. Maybe time as you're driving for, for thinking, it provides time for play and arguments and fighting and apologies and stories and singing together. And unexpected hardships, but also unexpected joys, as well as all these other shared experiences that you might have while you travel. And they are changing you along that journey. All this stuff that you'd miss out on if you could just instantly transport. And here's the connection. God not only has an eternal destination for you, but he has a transformational journey that he wants to take you on as you go there. Every single Christian, every true follower of Christ, God is going to change you as you travel, transform you as he takes you forward. And that's the name of the new series that we just started last week, Forward to the Cross and to the Crown. Five weeks of us looking at the mission of the church that God has given us and your place in it. Last week, Pastor Ty introduced a diagram, something that we'll continue to explain a little more each week, with the hope that by the end of these five weeks, if someone were in a coffee shop to say, well, what's, what's your church about? Like, what are they doing? You could pull out a napkin and a pen and just draw it out and explain it to them very simply. And it begins with a cross and a crown signifying both the, the past and future work of Jesus Christ, these significant moments, the empty cross standing for his death and resurrection, which bring us life and the forgiveness of sin. And then the crown, which stands for this future eternal reign of Jesus that we await. Next, we add arrows to, to recognize that these aren't simply isolated events, but rather this forward-moving plan that is both historical, it has happened, and it is affecting all of us, but it's also personal, because God is at work in gathering persons, people, moving them forward to Christ, first at the cross to rescue us, and then forward again to be transformed and join him at the crown to surround and praise him and bring him glory. And we can summarize this extraordinary plan of God like this, to gather a rescued and transformed people to glorify Jesus forever. People from every nation, every race, color, language, every kind of background, and even every kind of problem or personality. It's this big picture that motivates us to carry out the mission of making disciples, or as we talk about it here at South Shores, growing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so the first era we label then as reach, because the plan begins with God and therefore his church reaching out to people who are in danger of destruction, reaching those who are in what it calls the domain of darkness so that they can be rescued by Jesus. And the reach arrow it reminds us that there is this directional idea, this direction needed for people to move from darkness into light, from death into life, the movement forward toward the cross. And once somebody does reach this point, well, then another journey begins. 
And this is the journey I want to focus on this morning. And we're going to do so by talking about who is the person who's traveling on this journey. What's their identity? What's their direction? What's their movement look like? And what's the ultimate destination? And really, it's all in a way to answer the question, well, what is a disciple? And we begin with identity. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Yellowstone, it's, it's an incredibly large park, and it's full of a lot of really great wildlife because of the geysers and just the, some of the natural heat things. There's animals that can live there year-round that would normally move on. And some of these animals you can see during the day. In fact, you'll see them just as you're entering into Hayden Valley or one of the other valleys, and bison will walk right past your car. And you're thinking, that's a 2,500-pound bison this far from my vehicle's window. Yeah, I'm not going to get out and toy with that thing. I don't know. Uh, you'd have to be crazy to do that. I don't know if you guys saw that on CNN. Uh, but you see bison and elk during the day. But there's some other animals that you really will only catch a glimpse of if you get up at sunrise or you wait till sunset. Those would be animals like the grizzlies or the wolves. And so we had this plan to go out into one of those valleys by sunrise to, to try and see some of these cool animals. Well, that meant we had to get everybody from our family and then the other family we were camping with into the car by 5 a.m. <laughs> Somehow it sounded like a good idea at dinner the night before when we were talking about the plan, but as the night got uh, later, as the morning started coming, it didn't sound as good. So it wasn't too surprising when our friend visited our tent very quietly at 4.50 are you awake? I think secretly hoping we weren't. Because if we were asleep, she was going to go back to her husband and they were going to sleep and we were going to say, well, I guess we'll try in the evening. Well, why did she ask that? Well, it's a necessary first step. If you're going to go on the journey, first you've got to wake up in order to get ready and to go. Well, so too it is with this new journey. It begins with a necessary change in what you are in your status, in your identity. Because a disciple, and this is your first villain, is someone who has been rescued. You see, you can't just try it out and follow the moral commands of Christ or strive for the holiness that God requires if you have not first been changed, if you haven't first been rescued. It's like trying to yourself get your kids loaded into the car and go see the wolves, but you haven't even woken up yet. I don't recommend it. No, it's impossible. Of course, the Bible doesn't talk about it that way. It doesn't talk about minivans at all. It says that before we were rescued, what? We were dead. We were condemned. We were enslaved in our sin. We were alienated, separated from God. And we were under his wrath. But the good news is that there is a solution to all of these problems. And that is by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our being united to him in faith, that when he rescues us, he changes our standing in all of these areas. Instead of dead, we have then now been made alive. Instead of condemned, we have been justified. Instead of enslaved, we have been redeemed and set free. Instead of alienated, we have been reconciled and adopted. And instead of being under God's wrath, Jesus has taken that in our place and we have been saved. That's amazing. 
And so when you ref- respond with faith and repentance, which are Bible words that mean turning away from going your own way, the life that you thought was best, and instead placing your trust in Jesus, that his efforts alone can get you there, that his way of doing things is right, that he is the only one who can rescue you. And then in that moment, God makes all of these changes. It's a decisive, life-altering change with eternal ramifications, and it all occurs at the moment of rescue, and it's done by God's grace. The disciple is someone who is rescued. So I have to begin with asking the question, have you been rescued? I mean, Have you responded to Jesus' call to repent and believe in his name? Because if the Bible is true in its assessment of our situation, then what is keeping you from taking Jesus up on his offer? And for the others, if you have been rescued, do you then know where you are going or what's expected of you? Because while it starts with rescue, it doesn't end there. There's more to the story. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor and author who lives in North Carolina, he writes this. He says, my fear is that as we rightly celebrate all that Christ has saved us from, we're giving little thought and making little effort concerning all that Christ has saved us to. You see, it's not just enough to to wake up. You got to have somewhere to go. In fact, you need someone to follow. While we were in Yellowstone, we, uh, which is a really big park, I had never been, so I didn't know. So you do a lot of driving to get to the places then that you want to walk and hike and see things. And we had another family who was with us. They had already been there before, so they ended up being the lead car, which worked out pretty well most of the time. Except for our first morning in Yellowstone, we were going to go to see Old Faithful, and we had a little bit of difficulty just leaving the campground. I was in the following car, so we followed them around the campsite loop, and then he turned right, and I turned right, and he pulled a U-turn, and I pulled a U-turn. And then we're going along, and there's another road that we passed, and so then he does a U-turn, and then I do a U-turn, and he goes back and realizes that's not the road, and then he does a U-turn, and I do a U-turn. And then we start making our way the way we had been going, and we get out of the campground. I was doing my job as a follower pretty well, you have to admit. Maybe the problem I was following the wrong car that morning. But some might say the problem was that I was following it all because we don't really like that word. It's not celebrated in our culture, in our lives. I grew up always hearing, be a leader, Derek, be a leader, not a follower. But I think we're gravely mistaken if we think that even the the highest up leaders of our culture aren't following something. They all are. I mean, even in this little situation, sure, I was following my friend, but if I wasn't following him, I was going to be trying to follow signs or map or my phone or my own innate, incredible sense of direction. (laughs) Why do you laugh? (laughs) To modify uh, the lyric of Bob Dylan's song, you're going to have to follow somebody. And Jesus calls out to his disciples from the beginning, and he says, follow me. And this is how his disciples responded, and Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, he says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, follow me are these rabbi words. They're technical. It's a technical term that is for someone to become their disciple, to become this apprentice or a life learner. It literally means walk after me, but it's a call to stop choosing your own directions and let this other person choose them for you. Because a disciple is not only someone rescued, but someone who is following Christ. 
The disciples, original 12, they walked around with Jesus. They walked in his steps. They listened to him talk. They watched his ways of responding to people and pressure and pain. And they didn't follow him because it was easy. In fact, Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He said, when we're rescued, we immediately agree to a new direction, recognizing it's Jesus who knows the way to go. Jesus is the one who knows how to live. And it cannot look like our old life because our old life was self-focused. It was about our own fulfillment. But rather, he says it looks like a life oriented around self-denial and self-sacrifice because it's how Jesus directs us. Now, we don't get to actually today follow someone named Jesus who physically rocks in front of us and we can physically take steps after his. But the concept of total following and transformative learning oriented around Christ has not changed. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, in there in chapter 4, verse 20, he's talking about in contrast to this life of darkness and ignorance, well, this is what he says, verse 20. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, in the new rescued life, Jesus is the key to every part of our learning and our growth. See, Jesus is the subject we learn. It says you learned Christ. He's not talking about facts and figures, but coming to a personal knowledge of who he is. Secondly, Jesus is the teacher. He's the one that we hear. He's the one who guides us. It's his words that make up scripture that we teach and study and discuss. Third, he is the very school. Jesus is the learning environment. It says you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's making a contrast to what? Being in darkness. No, you're not in darkness where you can't see and you can't understand and you don't know what's going on. You are in Christ and you are in the perfect environment for you to have understanding. So this is to say that when you became a Christian, when you were rescued, you were immediately enrolled into the school of Christ. And your job is to learn, to keep learning. And I know for some of you, the idea of going back to school sound about as bad as, I don't know, dying. Some people hate school. So let me give you another picture. It's not the only imagery the scriptures use. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, no matter what type of imagery, we're dependent upon Jesus, not only for our rescue, but our continued learning, movement, and growth. So to be a disciple is to have our identity and our direction change. That's why in the diagram, there's this another arrow beyond the cross. And guess what? It has direction. And it's been given to us by a director. And it doesn't just stay at the cross. It's expected that you follow that direction and move. And the question is, was your hope for Jesus just to be your rescuer and then to kind of back off? Or are you willing to give him control of the direction of your life? 
Because I have to tell you, it's not actually a choice where you get to pick one or the other. They come together, and if he's not the one directing your life, then potentially he's not the one who has rescued you either. He does both, and they're both necessary. A disciple is someone who is rescued and following Christ. And as you begin to move in his direction, that's what we talked about from the beginning, you change. Now, I got to tell you a little more from our trip. The, the first evening, we were about an hour and a half down the road. We were excited because we ended up leaving on Sunday evening instead of Monday. So we we're going to travel less each day. An hour and a half down the road, we hear a sound on the roof of our car. It's like, that's a weird place to hear sound. Rebecca and I look at each other, and then we see the car next to us, guy, very wide eyes, pointing at the top of the van. Not good signs. We immediately have this horrible uh, thought of the box that's on top doing something bad, and so we, you know, pull over quickly across four lanes of traffic to get on the side of the freeway. And sure enough, the box had opened, and about half of our camping gear had flown out the back. Now, not the tent um, and not my sleeping bag, um, but a couple other sleeping bags and a chair and some blankets and our raincoats were somewhere in the past mile or two down the road. Traveling changes. 90 minutes in, we had already been changed. You know, like what we still owned uh, was different. You see, traveling transforms. But the key to understanding is that as we have been rescued, as we have been given a new way to go, in our movement, God is at work to grow us and to make us more like Christ and less like the world. Not just in our identity, which was fully completed at our rescue, not even just in the direction that we're oriented, but in how we actually think and speak and act and the heart that fuels it all. Meaning as you follow Jesus, you will not remain the same. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Hey, we're focused on Christ. What are we? We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that's why in this diagram, we've added this label to that second arrow of grow. Because not only did Jesus pay for your entrance into his kingdom, but he is also preparing you as you travel to get there. Now, it might not be a straight line. It's a growth of starts and stops, of getting stuck sometimes, of spinning around, and eventually, though, taking more ground. That's why in Philippians 3, Paul encourages us to, like him, press on for that transformation. And in Colossians, we're reminded to live out of this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's why the authors of Hebrew reminds us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely as we run with endurance for the race set before us. The truth is, much of the New Testament is giving us the marks of the Christian life which is necessary for the disciple. And that is to say that we, one, we, we grow in knowledge. We need to know what God desires for our lives. But also, two, we, at the same time, we'll be growing in obedience, that we will actually do what he says. Like in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, this is 
not complicated to understand. We get it, but it's also very overwhelming because there's already so many things from the Christian life that we already know loving your enemies, not responding to people with anger, being kind, being generous. Ooh, we can easily think of a list of things that we're already not doing that good at, or at least not all the time. But the nature of our growth is much the same as how we came to Christ in the first place, and that is of repentance and faith. You see, God in that process is going to dig up and, and show you your sin. And it's not that, oh, that means I'm not traveling. That means I'm not growing. Actually, it's the opposite. He is showing it to you so that you can repent and respond in the faith that, yes, I still trust that Jesus, his way is the way I want to go. God, give me the strength to get there. Whether it's in that morning decision to open your Bible or thinking about how to respond to a person who just insulted you, or even how you're going to respond to a frustrating and costly delay of a car top carrier suddenly opening and dumping out all your stuff onto the freeway at the beginning of a long road trip. These are all moments for growth. And even in the difficult times, and even when we fail, it's all preparation. Again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, disciples are not perfect. Christians are not perfect. Paul didn't think he had attained perfection, but they are on a trajectory of becoming like Christ. So are you still committed to growing? Or do you think, well, this is kind of just how I've always been and I'm not about to change now? Christians, we don't have that luxury to think that way. Until the day you die, Jesus has some new area in your heart and your mind and your body to be transformed. So don't give up now. I've got to tell you, I've been so encouraged by some of the older people in this church, 30 to 50 years older than myself. And I end up getting these conversations with them and they let me know about uh, through talking and through praying, like that there's still sin that they're being shown. But they're just not giving up about it. And there's God's word that they still want to know better. And they've already memorized some of it. And that there is still uh, things that they're hoping, will you please pray for me so that I will be more like Christ? They haven't given up. Instead, they are at the peak of their growth, continuing to grow more and more. And that encourages me. What scares me, on the other hand, are the ones who seem to have already decided that they've kind of figured out this God thing and this being a Christian and church thing, and instead of continuing to see how can I grow, how can I take another step forward towards Christ, they're like, ah, cruise control. I'm just going to coast this one out. I'm sure I'm there. But a disciple, you see, is someone who is rescued and following Christ on a transformative journey, and it continues on. And here's the incredible encouragement that God gives us. You see, he is committed to you reaching your destination. One of the funny things about traveling with young kids, my oldest is seven, is that they have absolutely no concept of time or distance, okay? Now I do, probably only because my phone tells me how far I've traveled and how long it's still gonna take. But I think I have a little better sense of like what an hour is. For my kids, an hour can be like a day. And three hours can be only feel like 30 minutes or 20 because it depends on what they're occupied with. That's kind of how they know how much fun they're having. And while sometimes they might get impatient, they never worry about whether or not they're going to get there. 
I think we can learn from that. Because you see, in the same way, in our following Christ on this transformative journey, we don't really know how much distance we all have to cover. And we don't really know how much time it's going to take. But we can be certain that the driver, that God both knows the way and that he will get us there. He says this in Philippians. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And in Romans, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the mind of God, it's completed work, but it's happening out in time. And you see, a disciple is someone who will be like Jesus. Not simply that we'll admire him or that we'll try to imitate him the way that we do now, but rather that when we see Christ face to face, we will be made to be like him in holiness and in righteousness and in our character and in our love. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Or as one of my favorite verses says, the one we started this service with, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will continue to grow and change and transform more and more into the image of Christ on this earth as we grow in knowledge and obedience, as we respond in faith and repentance. But we will not finish in this life. Yet this process, which some people call sanctification, we will be completed when we see Christ face to face. And so if you know it's going to be guaranteed, then how does that affect how you respond? Well, I can tell you in the next verse in 1 John, it tells us how we should respond. It says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Because our destination is sure. It empowers us not through guilt, but through hope to work with God, to get one step closer, to take one more step forward in line with that goal. And we can work with the confidence that God's at work and God will not fail. Because when we put all these different attributes together, we see this. A disciple is someone who is rescued and following Christ on a transformative journey to become like him. So what is the takeaway for this? Well, I hope as we put that diagram back on there that you will see your place in this diagram. Where are you at? If you've already been rescued and you're on this side of the cross, then you're on a journey of transformation and let the church, let the people around you help you as you grow. You're not there yet, but be encouraged. God wants to work in you and he will get you there. But if you're on the other side of the cross, please hear our plea, be reconciled to God. There's no other way, there's no other plan, no other rescuer that can bring you the joy-filled, abundant life that's offered in Jesus. In fact, after we pray, I'd love for you to stick around and talk to myself or one of the other pastors or our prayer partners that'll come forward. But then also with that, today, if you have realized that, you know what, Jesus, I, I thought of him as a rescuer, but he's more like a license plate. You know, when you're out traveling, it tells you where you're from, but it doesn't tell you where you're going. He's been my fire insurance, and I didn't realize, I didn't know, or at least I haven't been living, that he's the one who sets my direction and transforms me and goes. If that's you this morning, also, please stick around up here so that we can pray with you and talk to you about what those next steps look like. Now, you've probably heard the saying, it's about the journey, not the destination, right? Uh, it's a, a saying that has come up in our end results-oriented culture to try and slow us down and enjoy the process a little bit. But here's the thing, it doesn't have to be one or the other. God says very clearly that it's both. He cares where you're going, and he's committed to your transformation as you get there. 
and our part as Christians is to do what we can to take one more step forward and then another and then another. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that the act of being in church, of singing your words, of praying your words, of hearing your words preached is an act that you are working through in our lives. Help us to continue to take steps forward and to look around and see that we have a role, a mission to help the other people in our spheres of influence, Lord, that we can help them take a step forward either to the cross or toward the crown. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.